I feel that I ought to uh, take the first 15 minutes this morning and rebut everything that Luis Palau said about me <coughs> last uh, last week. Now, seriously, Luis is uh, just a wonderful friend and one of my favorite prophets, and I'm just so glad you had an opportunity to uh, to hear him. He's a remarkable person. Will you turn with me to Daniel 8? The eighth chapter of Daniel. I'm, I'm sure those of you that studied this chapter in your growth groups wondered how in the world can anything good come out of Daniel 8. But this is the uh, passage that predicts for us the event uh, commemorated by the Jews in the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. We have a, a Jewish family just down the street from us. They're wonderful neighbors, just delightful people. They have a little boy, Brent, who's about, he's nine now. But three years ago, Christmas three years ago, when he was six, he came wandering by. And he's a very talkative, friendly, outgoing little boy. And I was shoveling snow in the front yard. And as he came by, he said, uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Roper. And I said, uh, Happy Hanukkah, Brent. And he just stopped in mid-stride like that. And he turned around and he said, You know about Hanukkah? <laughs> and I said, Yes, I, I, I know a little something about Hanukkah. And I suppose he uh, is reacting the way so many Jews react to our Christian understanding of their culture, which, in fact, is our culture, because Hanukkah is something that we can look back to. It's a part of our Old Testament heritage as well. And the particular event that is memorialized in that feast is predicted for us here in Daniel 8. Let's begin reading with verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So this ties us into chapter two, chapter 7, rather, and uh, the vision that Daniel received there in the first year of, of Belshazzar. Belshazzar, as you know, is the last of the Babylonian kings. He's now in his third year, which would be 550 B.C. And that's a significant date because that's the date that Cyrus went on the move. Cyrus... Uh, overthrew the yoke of the Median Empire, and Persia became the dominant power in the Middle East. So Daniel got up that morning and picked up his uh, Newsweek magazine and saw that Cyrus was on the move, and he put this together with Isaiah 45 and Isaiah's prediction that Cyrus would be the one that would deliver the Jews from exile, send them back to rebuild the temple. And perhaps, uh, we're not told, but perhaps he asked God for wisdom at this point, and the vision was is given. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa. Susa later became the capital of Persia, but at this time it was part of the Babylonian Empire, one of the palace cities. I, uh, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam, which would be modern-day Iran. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. The Ulai Canal is a river that gave the city of Susa access to the Persian Gulf, made a seaport uh, city and a, and a very important city out of it. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, a male sheep with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. 
Now, a bit later in the uh, chapter, Gabriel interprets the ram for Daniel, verse 20. The two-horned ram you saw represent the kings of Media and Persia. So we know what the ram represents. One verse covers 200 years of uh, history. Some of the greatest kings who we know anything about, if you can think back into your past, your Western civilization, history of Western civ classes, you you heard the names of kings like Cyrus and Cambyses and Darius and, and Xerxes and Artaxerxes and the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae and Salamis and all these great battles that took place between the Greeks and the Persians uh, <clears throat> during this uh, period of time that that the medial Persian Empire was in, in ascendancy in the Middle East. It's all passed over in one verse. Then he, the vision goes on. He said, I was thinking about this, verse 5, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, again, we're not left in doubt about the interpretation of the goat because... Uh, Gabriel interprets uh, 4 Daniel, verse 21. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The first horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. So we know that the horn, the, the goat, uh, represents Alexander the Great. I can never say that name without thinking of all those uh, goofy grape jokes of a few generations ago, you know. Uh, what is purple and goes slam, 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 slam. Uh, it's a four-door grape. And what is it that is purple and rides a horse named Bucephalus, Alexander the Grape? But this is Alexander the Great himself, who is uh, symbolized here as a, as a horn. A horn broken off at the height of its, of its power. Alexander was tutored by Aristotle to hate the Persians. The Persians had burned uh, the Acropolis and had, had uh, treated the uh, Greeks terribly, all sorts of atrocities that the Persians did to the, to the Greeks. And Alexander grew up to hate the Persians. That's why he began his world conquest by going east. He crossed the Hellespont. When he was only 23 years of old, uh, 23 years of age, as you know, 332 B.C., and began his conquest of these 32,000 soldiers, Greek, uh, his Greek phalanxes, rolled over Persia, one battle after another, until Darius finally had his back to the wall at Arbella, and he destroyed, scattered the uh, Persian army, and Darius later himself was killed, and Alexander just kept on going east till he came to the Indus Valley. Where, as the history books tell us, he wept because there were no kingdoms left to conquer. Actually, he did think that was the end of the world, but at that point, his army simply rebelled. They'd been uh, fighting for 12 years. They wanted to go home and see their wives and kitties, and, and they simply refused to go any further. So Alexander went back to Babylon, where he began to plan his western campaign, and as you know, he died of a fever. He was a drunken, 
broken old man at 32 years of age. That's what this passage is referring to, this vision. It refers to, symbolizes as a horn, a large horn broken off at the height of his power. A whole period of time, at 12 years from 332 to 323, is covered in just a, just a few verses. And then we're told in verse uh, 8 that the, that the height of the goat's power in its place, the, the, the horn is broken off and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. That covers a period of about 150 years from Alexander's time down to the middle of the 2nd century B.C., and what happened is when Alexander died, his kingdom broke apart. A lot of squabbling and fighting over who would take over. And finally, his kingdom was divided into four parts, partly among his generals, partly among some other uh, leaders of that period of time. Cassander, one of his generals, killed Alexander's mother and his boy, so the, who was the heir apparent. He took over Greece and Macedonia. Another, Lysimachus, took over what we would call Turkey today. A man named Seleucus became the emperor of Syria, headquartered in Damascus. He governed the region, which today is Syria, all the way east to India. And a man named Ptolemy took over Egypt. So he had this fourfold division of Alexander's kingdom. For about 150 years, the two superpowers, Syria in the north and Egypt in the south, fought one another over Palestine. Palestine became the battleground. And nations moved back and forth across Palestine. The Jews suffered horribly during that time. The Bible doesn't mention that. just just passes over that entire period until it comes down to the period about 170, 165 B.C. Then we're told in verse 9, out of one of them, that is out of one of the horns, the Syrian horn, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, that is, it had a very insignificant origin, but grew in power to the south, down toward Palestine and Egypt, to the east, over toward India, and toward the beautiful land, which is Israel, Palestine. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. The host of the heavens are stars, so this uh, horn reached for the stars. And it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them, trampled the stars underfoot. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. The prince of the host is God, prince of the stars, king of the stars. He took away the daily sacrifice from him, that is, the horn did. It took the daily sacrifice from him, the sacrifice in Jerusalem, on the altar, the atoning sacrifice, the lamb that substituted for the sins of, of the people. And the place of his sanctuary, that is, the temple, was brought low, was desecrated. Because of rebellion, Something, someone is in rebellion, because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. We would say truth was dragged through the mud. Same idea. Then I heard a holy one speaking, uh, verse 13. A holy one is an angel. And another holy one said to him, so we were listening in on a conversation between two angels. One raises the question, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice that was brought to a stop, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender or the giving over of the sanctuary and of the host, the stars that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, the question is asked of one of the angels, but the angel turns to John or to Daniel because that was his question as well. He says it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Uh, 
<laughs> Reconsecrated, set right. 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices would be 1,150 days or so, three years in about four months. Now the interpretation is given in verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, that is the reign of the four horns referred to in verse 22, when rebels have become completely wicked, when transgression has reached its full measure, is the idea, a stern-faced king, a hard man, one who, who, who takes the hard line, a master of intrigue, uh, the word intrigue means double talk, a master of ambiguous speak, he speaks with forked tongue. He will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. So he's a political power who is empowered by another force. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. The holy people are Israel. He will cause deceit to prosper. He's a liar, and he gets away with it. And he'll consider himself superior, arrogant. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, against God himself. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now, I want you to notice the relationship of these two statements. He will become strong, but not by his own power. And he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now, who is this uh, masked man? What can we say about this fellow? Well, he's predicting that someone will come out of the Syrian empire who is going to desolate and devastate God's people. We know exactly who he's talking about because it's already happened. Out of this, uh, the, the kingdom of Syria, a man arose. He was the eighth in line from the first Seleucid uh, emperor. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. You've probably heard that name. One, one historian I read this past week said he was bad, mad, and dangerous. And that well describes him. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, that's the name he took for himself, because uh, he felt he was God in the flesh. Epiphanes means manifest. His full name was Antiochus Theos Epiphanes. Epiphanes. Antiochus, God manifest. He had coins minted with his picture on it in the shape of Zeus. He thought he was Zeus in human form. He was deranged. He was crazy. Matter of fact, the Jews, in their typical puckish Humor called him not Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimenes, which means crazy Antiochus. And he was. He was absolutely crazy. He inherited a kingdom that was falling apart. He was desperate to retain control. Taxed the Jews very heavily because he was paying tribute to the Romans. Romans were starting to meddle in, in Eastern affairs. It was only 146 B.C. when they took over this whole area, so we were within 25 or 30 years of that period. And... Uh, the Romans had conquered Carthage, and they were beginning to move, and, and Antiochus panicked, and he was short of cash. He couldn't pay his bills, and his nation was disunified, mostly because of the Jews. The Jews were giving him fits because they wouldn't become Greeks. They wouldn't place God, their God, in the pantheon with all the other Greek gods, and so he began a program of systematic persecution of the Jews. He wanted to eradicate Judaism. He wanted to destroy the Jewish nation. He almost got away with it. In 169, he sent his legate into uh, Jerusalem, and they stripped all the gold off of the temple, and they stole all the vessels and all the furniture, which was overlaid with gold, in order to pay off some of their debts to, uh, to Rome. In 167, early in 167, he sent his, uh, one of his officials, a man by the name of uh, Apollonius, into Jerusalem, 
uh, carrying a white flag. And then when he got into the city, they uh, butchered the inhabitants of the city. They killed 40,000 people in a matter of a few days, women, men, women, and, and children. Whenever they, they caught Jewish boys out on the street, if they were circumcised, they killed them on the spot, and then they went after their parents. They took their Bibles away from them. Of course, they didn't have individual Bibles, but the scrolls that were kept in the temple. They, they sacked the temple, and they took, took the scrolls. They prohibited the reading of Scripture. They prohibited the worship of Yahweh. They, the final atrocity was on December the 25th, 167. B.C., they uh, slaughtered a pig at Antiochus' direction. They slaughtered a pig on the altar of sacrifice, the place where the lamb was slain for the, the substitute for the sins of the people. And uh, Antiochus made soup out of the pig and sprinkled it around the, the altar in a parody of, of the uh, sprinkling of the, of the blood of the lamb. And then he forced the priest to drink the soup and, and eat, eat pig flesh. And uh, he just did everything he could to try to exterminate the worship of God in, in Israel. He put a, a Greek gymnasium in the city dedicated to Hermes. And here is this monstrosity right in the middle of the city dedicated to a Greek god. And uh, many of the Jews capitulated. They, they couldn't handle the, the pressure. But there was a hard core of believers who simply would not succumb. And they paid for it with their, with their lives. Many of them did. No one knows precisely how many of God's people died during that, during that time. There was a little town about, uh, about 20 miles southeast of Jerusalem called Modin. And there was an elderly fellow living there. His name was Mattathias. And he was one tough fellow. Um, Antiochus sent, uh, sent a representative down to Modin one of his Syrian officers, to compel sacrifice to Zeus. They built an altar in the middle of town with an idol to Zeus. and They picked on Mattathias. They picked on the wrong man, but they picked on him because they knew he was the leader of the Jewish community in Modin. If they could force him to worship, they could force, the rest, force the rest of the, uh, of the uh, people in the city. Mattathias just flatly refused. He said, I won't do it. So the Syrian officer pulled out a sword, to kill Mattathias, there was another elderly Jew there who thought that he could save uh, Mattathias' life by leading in the worship. So he walked up to the altar to sacrifice to Zeus. <laughs> Mattathias pulled out his sword and shishkebab this elderly Jew. And then when the Syrian army, a uh, Syrian officer attacked Mattathias, he killed the Syrian officer, sounded the battle cry, and fled into the, into the hills. And Mattathias and his five sons and thousands of Jews went into the hills and carried on a, a kind of guerrilla warfare, much like the warfare that's going on in Afghanistan today, harassing the Syrians, giving them grief, winning some remarkable battles. They were way outnumbered. It was just obvious that God was, was giving help. As a matter of fact, Daniel says they will receive a little help during this time. God was helping them. And eventually, they, they wore the Syrians down. The, the, the Syrians were all fighting another, another set of battles. They were fighting the Parthians off to the east, and they couldn't assign their main, main body of their army to Palestine. And eventually, the Maccabeans, they're called, uh, were able to work out a, a peace with, with the Syrians. By the way, they're called Maccabeans because Mattathias died shortly after he killed this, uh, this man in Modin. And his, his son, Judas, became the leader of the, Mac of, of the revolt. And his name was Judas, his nickname 
was Maccabeus, Judas Maccabeus, which means hammer. So he was the Mike Hammer of the, of the second century. And uh, his, his nickname was the name that was given to the movement, the Maccabean movement. They're also called Hasmoneans. You may have heard that name because they were of the family. Metathias was of the family of Hasmon. But they eventually uh, were able to, uh, to stop the persecution, to harass the Syrians to the point that the Syrians were willing to leave them alone. And they went back on December the 25th, 19, or 174 B.C. And they re-consecrated the temple. There's a description of that consecration in the book of Maccabees. If you want to, I've just given you a quick uh, outline of what happened. It's a fascinating story, but if you want a, a description of that that guerrilla warfare and the conflicts that occurred during that time, you should read the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. But we're told that, that, that when the peace was, uh, was arranged, then Judas and his brothers went back to the uh, temple, which they found... Uh, Desecrated, the gates burned down, vegetation growing in the in the courts. They discussed what should be done about the altar of Holocaust, which had been profane. That was the altar on which the, the pig was was offered. They decided to pull it down, that it might never become a reproach to them. Then they took unhewed stones, unhewn stones as the law prescribed, and built a new altar on the lines of the old one. They restored the holy place and the interior of the house and purified the courts. They made new sacred vessels because Antiochus had taken them all away and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. They burned incense on uh, the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand. And these shone inside the temple for the first time in a little over three years. They set out the loaves on the table and hung the curtains and completed all the tasks that, that they had undertaken. On the 25th of the ninth month, Chislev, which is our month, December, 148 here, the, the uh, dating is a little bit off in, in Maccabees. It would be, be 147, uh, or 143, excuse me. They offered a lawful sacrifice on the, on the new altar of Holocaust, which they had made. And this took place 1,150 years after the first desecration of the temple, right down to the day, as Daniel had, predict, had predicted, three years and four months later. Now, this is one of the reasons the critics don't like this book, because here's a clear indication of, of a prediction of the cleansing, the re- rededication of the temple uh, 500 years before it occurred. Now, the Jews today celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah, as you know, in, in commemoration of the, of the cleansing of the temple. This feast is even is referred to in the New Testament as the Feast of Dedication. Jesus came to the temple on that particular day, we're told in John. And as you know, they put the menorah in the window, the eight-pronged candlestick, except this one has a, has a ninth prong in the center. Uh, and they light the center candle first, and then working from the outside in, they start to light the outer candles for eight days leading up to the 25th of December. And that is the Feast of, of Hanukkah. That's the background of it, the historical background of it. it. coincides with our Christmas simply because it occurred on December the 25th. It's not an attempt on the part of the Jews to parody Christmas or anything of that sort. Now, that's the background of this thing. Now, you read an account like this, and you well, so what? You know, what, what significance can this possibly have for us? This is something that happened 2,000 years ago. Why is it significant for us, other than just helping us to understand the culture of, of the Jewish people? Well, as I thought about this passage this last uh, this last week, several things occurred to me, and I 
I want to want to share some of some of the observations that uh, that I made. The first is that it's 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 clear from this chapter and from other chapters in Daniel that that the hard times come and go for God's people. Daniel uh, knew from Isaiah that Cyrus was coming to deliver his people. They were going to go back and and rebuild the the temple and reinstitute sacrifices there. And the word that he received from God is that that the temple would be desolated. And God's people would would suffer terribly. And so he learned that that these hard times come to God's people. As a matter of fact, in Daniel 8 and 9, we'll talk about this next week, he was concerned about this disaster, prayed about it. God said, desolations are decreed. Desolations, period. There will be a number of times when God's people uh, suffer terribly. But God is behind it all. That, that, that's the message that comes through. God is behind it all. God hasn't lost control. He isn't giving away to panic. He, he's, he's sovereign. He rules. And nothing ha- happens in the world that's random. As I said before, there are no maverick molecules. There's nothing loose running around the universe. God is sovereign. And when the hard times come, God's in control. Now, that doesn't mean that God is the one who authors the evil. He can't be touched by evil. Uh, James tells us that he's the father of light with whom there's no shadow of darkness. Only good comes from God. But there are times that he will release his restraint upon evil, and he'll let evil have its day. That's the point that Paul is making in 2 Thessalonians when he says... you know about the mystery of lawlessness. You understand the serpent behind the scene who's creating all the mischief and all the heartache and all the distress in the world. You know that. And he who restrains will restrain. But one of these days he's going to take his hands off of evil and, and the mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness will be manifest. You see, Most times come and go when God, for good reason, takes his hands off of evil men and lets them go, lets them have their day. But he terminates their evil at the proper time. Evil doesn't exist in the world because God has no control over it. It's because he has permitted it for good cause. And as this text tells us, when the time came for Antiochus to be broken, he was broken. That's why I think the juxtaposition of those two phrases is so helpful. He became strong not by his own power. Satan was the agent behind Antiochus. No question about it. It wasn't God who empowered him to do these terrible things to his people. God doesn't do those things. It was Satan. But but Satan's not out of control. Because verse 25 tells us that he, that is Antiochus, at the proper time, will be destroyed, but not by human power. It wasn't the Jews that killed Antiochus. If we can trust Josephus, he died a terrible, painful death while he was on the road back to Jerusalem carry out one of his uh, one of his destructions fell ill and died from some unknown undisease God struck him down he said all right that's enough and he put an end to it and 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 that's the character of God he will let evil run rampant for a time but he will put a stop to it and if we're at realists then we will know that there'll be hard times that's the name of the game our Lord said, or, or Paul said, that those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a promise. I don't like that promise. 
But nevertheless, it's a promise. So there will be hard times. There will be times of persecution that we experience. There will be times when we suffer economically. There will be times when we suffer physically. There will be times when, when our children will give us grief. There will be times when we struggle in our marriage because there is an enemy who is out to destroy us. And God will permit that for a period of time. He will even permit ungodly people to harass us. As he did uh, the Jews in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. That was the thing that troubled Habakkuk. Habakkuk was, was upset because, uh, because uh, God's people were, were so wicked. And the Lord said, well, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to bring the Babylonians against them. They're my rod to, to chasten them. And Habakkuk said, well, that isn't right. They're more ungodly than God's people are. And God said, well, that's all right. In time, I'll take care of them. But in the meantime, I'm going to use them as, as my rod in order to chasten and, and, and prepare a people for myself. So we shouldn't be surprised when the hard times come. As Peter puts it in his little letter, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. When God wants to do something in the world, he begins with us. And very often the hard things that we go through are simply God's, God's way of preparing us for something greater as Jesus put it to the disciples, you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be thrown out of the synagogues, you're going to be beaten, you're going to be battered, you're going to be hated for my name's sake, you're going to be killed. He said, I'm telling you all these things so when they happen, you won't stumble. So I'm warning you ahead of time. See? And that's, that's what we see from Daniel. But, but we don't need to despair because God is in control at the proper time. He cuts off evil. I have off and on been reading uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress for the last uh, several months, just a page or two a day, and thinking about it. And I came across an account uh, just two weeks ago of Christian and Hopeful and Vanity Fair, and they were mistreated and abused and called names. And, and they got out of Vanity Fair in uh, bad shape. And uh, Bunyan describes their road as a hard road, as a rough road. It was uphill, and they were stumbling over rocks and skinning their knees, and they were having a hard time. Finally, they were so tired, they sat down to rest, and they fell into the clutches of giant despair. And he locked them up in his prison, and he beat them up some more. And, and uh, then he, and this is the counsel of despair, he counseled them to take their lives. The things are so terrible, you might as well take your life. And they, they pondered that. They thought about it because they felt that way. There wasn't anything worth living for. And uh, they decided to spend the night thinking about that. The next morning they woke up and Pilgrim remembered he had a key in his pocket. And he pulled it out and it was the, it was the key promise. And he put it in the lock and it turned hard. It turned real hard. He could hardly get it to turn. The rock was, lock was rusty. But finally it broke loose and the door swung open. And they escaped with with giant despair chasing them but they escaped they got out of his of his castle key was promise and jesus says to us in the world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer i have overcome the world now that's that's one thing that we learn from this chapter the second thing that that i learn is that god will use suffering to purify his people. Judgment falls upon the church because God has to prepare us for our purpose. 
Now, we're, we're inclined to think when judgment falls on the world, it, it falls on the bakers, Jimmy and Tammy Baker. Or when God decides to judge the church, he judges those gays in the church. See, those guys over there. But what we have to understand is that, that God judges the church because there's evil in all of us. The Solzhenitsyn says, the line of evil does not run vertically between classes. It runs horizontally through the heart of every man and woman. So what these hard tongues do is, is purify us and purge us and teach us to hang on to God and to love Him more and draw upon Him and it rids us of our selfishness and self, self-centeredness. Uh, in one of, one of G.K. Chesterton's novels, Father Brown novels, he has his, uh, his sleuth say, no man's really any good till he knows how bad he is or could be. Till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all the snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. Till he's got rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about low types, we would say scuzzballs today, scumbags, those guys over there that God rightly ought to judge. Till he squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees. Till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. See what he's saying? That God does use suffering to purify his church. But it's not the bad guys over there. It's me. It starts with me. And the hurt and the pain and the anguish of our life is permitted by God. He does not send it, but he permits Evil to come into our life. He permits ungodly people to harass us. And maybe somebody you work with or work for or you're married to. He will permit that to happen in order to purify you and me. Because he loves us too much to to let us go on. And then thirdly and finally, it struck me as I read through this passage that there are a number of ways to react only one of which is appropriate. We could, we could react as Hezekiah did. You women that have been studying the book of Isaiah, recall what, I, what Hezekiah did when the word came to him that the Babylonians were going to come and, and purge Israel. Actually, he let the cat out of the bag. As you know, he told the Babylonians where the treasury was. And in Jerusalem, the Babylonians made a mental note of that, that when we start our world conquest, we're going to take out that temple. So it was Hezekiah's fault that the Babylonian captivity occurred. And Isaiah came to him and said, in effect, you're a fool. You opened up the treasuries of the temple. And your, your children and your children's children are going to suffer. And Hezekiah said, what, what's that you say? My children? Then I'll have peace and affluence in my time? That's cool, he said, as long as it doesn't happen to me. And, and that very often is the way we look at, at, at God's judging hand. It's going to happen to them over there. It'll never touch me. But don't count on it, because it does. The second inappropriate way to react, I think, is what I call Henny Penny's approach. Just to panic, run around, say, the sky's falling in on me. And, and to give way to fear and, and to fail in our faith. The third is Daniel's way. I want you to look at verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Vision blew his circuits. Could hardly handle it when he thought that suffering was coming. 
Then I got up. And I went about the king's business. What did he do when he got this revelation? He went back to work. He set the alarm clock the next day. He got up at 5 o'clock, took a shower, got his suit on, went back to work. He's a politician. So he, he worked in the, in the political realm, went back to work. Why? Because God wants us to be in the right place when the right time comes. It's waiting. Drawing upon the power of God. Resting in his adequacy. Counting on his sufficiency. Available for whatever, for whatever happened. Touch the lives of people around because when suffering comes, everybody hurts. That's why, by the way, in 1 Peter 4, when he says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, the very next paragraph says, all right, elders, start eldering. The significance of that had never struck me until I read it through the last time we, we studied it as, as elders. That when the church is suffering, then the leadership needs to be aware of that and be ready to move into that situation. And you see, that's true of the world. People are hurting. And when people are hurting, we need to be right where we can be put to use, at the right place, at the right time, showing love to people who are in distress. Talk to a, a dear woman this past week who's who's concerned, deeply concerned about reaching this uh, community and has a real heart for God and a heart for evangelism, and she's developing a plan to mobilize Christians in the community. One of the things she wanted to do was to put a sign out on the front lawn that said, Yield, right away. And when I talked to her, I said, no, I really appreciate your heart. I, I sense where you're going, but I said that, the thing that's going to reach people is not a sign on the front lawn saying yield right away. It's people who manifest the character of God, who've been purified by the grace of God, who are out there in the, in the world just loving people and making themselves available to reach out to, to people in need. I, about a year ago, I was in San Francisco, and I heard a man speak. His name is Brennan Manning. He's a remarkable man. He... He's written a book called The Wisdom of Accepted Tenderness. And uh, it's a rather lengthy, I don't have time to read it, time's up, but it's a rather lengthy uh, section here in which he describes his search for a, a man that he knew, uh, that he expected to find on Skid Row. He was an alcoholic, and he kept going back to the row, and, and he wanted to help him. So he said, as I drove through Skid Row, I spotted a man in a doorway whom I thought was my friend. He wasn't just another drunk wino who was neither sober nor drunk, nor drunk, just dry. He hadn't had a drink in 24 hours, and his hands trembled violently. He reached out and said, hey, man, can you give me a dollar to get some wine? I knelt down before him, and I took his hands in mine. I looked into his eyes. They filled with tears. I leaned over, and I kissed his hands. He began to cry. He didn't want a dollar. He wanted to be accepted in his brokenness, to be affirmed in his worthlessness, to be loved in his loneliness. He wanted to be relieved of what Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Cutta, with her vast personal experience of human misery, says is the worst suffering of all, the feeling of not being wanted. And I never located my friend, he said. Here's a man who went out for one purpose, and he happened to be used of God in another way to touch another life. And that's what God wants of us. We look at uh, the future and, and we recognize that the hard times are going to come and go. 
And, and that simply means that God wants us to get up tomorrow morning and go to work and make ourselves available to him. I was paying bills yesterday. That's a terrible thing to have to do on a Saturday, but my uh, calculator gave out on me. <clears throat> and uh, ever since the advent of calculators, I have lost the capacity to add and subtract and multiply and divide. So I was helpless. My uh, calculator is one of those things run by the sun, and I forgot to expose it to the sun, so it just went kaflui. And I remembered... In our, uh, in a desk in our bedroom, there's another calculator. So I went looking for it. I've used that calculator in uh, five, six years, probably. And I found it in the back part of the desk in one of the pigeonholes. It's an old TI calculator. It's kind of ugly. It's got a sway back. Somebody sat on it. It's bent on the front. The glass is fogged. And I looked at that thing and I thought there isn't a chance in the world that it'll work. I turned it on, and it worked. And I could uh, add and subtract and multiply and divide and pay the bills. And I was thinking about that yesterday, that that's a, that's a good illustration of the kind of people we could be. We never know who we're going to be put to use. You never know when you're going to run into someone who needs that kind of healing touch and that expression of love. Our tendency is to be so full of ourselves and so full of self-pity and so worried about what's happening to us that we, you know, we're just we're not even available to God. But if we're available to Him, if we're drawing on that that power within, there is a secret, quiet source of power in this computer, a little, little battery, that produces the power. And this this calculator was unused for four or five years, but when the time came to put it to use, it drew upon that little battery, and it was available to me. That's what God wants for us. See, not to say, oh, well, you know, hard times aren't going to come to me. Or to say the hard times have come on me. And woe is me. But, but to get up tomorrow morning and just keep quietly drawing upon the grace of God, the indwelling presence of Christ, make yourself available to him as you do your business tomorrow and wait for him to use you to touch some life. That, I think, is the message of Daniel 8. Let's pray. Father, we look around us at the um, restlessness of, of the nations in commotion and the upset and unrest, not only of nations but people, Lord, who are looking about for some, uh, some core, some lasting uh, source of strength and power, something that will satisfy and, Lord, we have to confess that very often we're so preoccupied with our own troubles and struggles that we forget the needs around us. Help us to realize that you're in control of all the affairs of our life, the struggles in our home and the struggles with our, uh, with our businesses and, and on the campus. Wherever we go, these, these matters matter to you. And you're orchestrating all events to bring about your will. And you're using these times of upset to purify us and prepare us to be your men and women. And so as we go to work tomorrow morning, Lord, we ask that we would go with confidence and quietly rely upon you and your strength. Help us to face whatever we have to face tomorrow in your strength. 
Help us to be available to you, to be, uh, to be used, to touch and to change lives for your sake. Make us, make us bearers of the good news wherever we go. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.